4: Hi, and welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. Here's what's on tap on this Wednesday. Stocks bouncing back today after falling to the lowest levels since late June 2020. Maybe the U.S. looking more attractive compared to the market chaos in Europe. The Bank of England making some surprising moves to try to rescue its bond market. Europe's energy crisis may be about to get even worse as someone apparently blew up parts of Russia's big Nord Stream pipeline. The EU saying they were caused by, quote, sabotage. The question is, by whom? And we are thinking of all of our friends and viewers and family down in Florida. As Ian makes landfall, we'll speak with the CEO of Generac about his company's efforts to keep the lights on in some of the hardest hit areas A very scary storm. Going to get to all that, folks, but right now we are going to begin with your Wednesday markets and looking a little bit better today than they had been the last couple of days that's for sure the dow bounced it back maybe a bear market bounce whatever you want to call it dow 444 points again you get yields something just talked about in the halftime 10 year yields coming dramatically down so we got kind of a flip as yields have come down we've seen stocks come up We've got the nasdaq the s&p and the dow industrials all above one percent right there so we are coming off those bear market lows by the way the british pound also stabilizing i know that's england and not here but it's got to be kind of helping macro market sentiment today the rally is really broad based right now energy communication healthcare they're all leading technology the only sector in the red and apple a big part of that story shares hit on reports of iphone production cuts due to weaker than expected demand Homebuilders actually getting a nice boost, though. That's just because rates are stabilizing and coming down. So maybe some short-term money coming into D.R. Horton, KB, Lennar, Pulte, and others. And a huge win for Biogen and maybe some Alzheimer's sufferers. Very encouraging news about drug trials around an Alzheimer's drug. Shares of Biogen are up 37.5% today. Big win there and hopefully a bigger win for those patients. All right, we're going to get more on stocks ahead. But we have to begin with the big market macro story of the day. That is the Bank of England intervening, trying to stabilize its debt market after they sold off massively. And there were very real fears of some kind of contagion. British bonds are known as gilts. The BOE saying it will suspend the planned start of gilt selling and begin temporarily buying long dated bonds. In other words, a huge flip flop. It's all part of an effort to try to calm the chaos that began the government announced its budget plans, let's try to make sense of all of this and bring in Steve Leishman by phone. Steve, it's it's kind of a complicated story. I know we don't talk about British bonds very much here on CNBC, but this was a gigantic global market
5: story. Yeah, for sure, Brian. It's a dramatic move, as you say. It is at least a temporary about face. They do intend to resume or or, or start their uh, uh, selling of the guilt again October 31st. They were supposed to do it next week. Um, and what's happened is uh, a lot of pension funds were uh, uh, ha- had a problem. They had margin calls for their ownership of the 30-year guilt. This came from the uh, uh, announcement last week by the British government that they were going to embark on tax cuts and increased deficit spending. That caused the uh, yields to rise. And then there was a statement over the weekend, uh, basically there may be more to come, and I think that's one of the things that freaked out the markets. I think we have to turn it, Brian, as you and I always do to the what's-in-it-for-me uh, uh, angle of the, of the story. And I think what's happened is there's some sense at all, if you look at what's happened to the outlook for the Fed funds market, uh, some sense at all this may cause the Fed to do somewhat less. I'm not sure that's well-placed. Uh, on the one hand, you could argue that this does remind the Fed that when you do stuff like uh, dramatic rate increases, that stuff can break in financial markets. So maybe provide some more caution. But I do need to tell viewers that Rafael Bostic, the Atlantic Fed president, is on the tape today saying that uh, his, his best guess or baseline is a 75 base point increase at the next meeting, followed by 50. So uh, Rafael, yeah. who's a bit a, a middle-of-the-road guy, uh, he's not edging off at the same time the market is thinking that perhaps this concern about something eventually breaking, which, by the way, we do understand that U.S. markets are, co- are, are, are functioning well and that fundamentally what this was in England, Brian, was a liquidity issue.
4: Yeah, and it's a very different story than we have here. I mean, there's a lot of similarities, obviously, between our countries and our economies, but there's also a lot of differences, Steve. You know, in last year, not tooting the horn, we were in in London in November of last year, pre-war, pre-invasion, talking about energy inflation and the risk to come. Obviously, we would not see it play out this far, but the reality is energy inflation is one of the big causes of this. Is it not because they were borrowing money – they were selling government debt to buy energy on the open market. So, so they really have, in part, I don't want to call it a financial crisis, maybe a financial freakout is a better term. A lot of that was caused by inflation and energy-related inflation, was it not? That's
5: 100% correct, uh, Brian. But as you know, markets don't freak out about bad developments that are sort of known Um, I think the energy issue is something that was known. It was also pretty well known um, and being discussed in markets that not just the U.K. government, but other governments in Europe were going to step in to subsidize some of these energy problems, which, of course, as you note, is much worse in the U.K. than it is here. We do have higher energy prices, but not as bad there. Also, their inflation problem is higher and getting worse. You have a U.K. – Bank of England – that's forecasting outright a recession. So mm. the issue, There are much more manifest, much more dire than they are here. But it really was the unknown. It was the it was the hit from the side, from the fiscal side. Now, I think what's interesting for our again, back to the what's in it for me department is this is a warning shot to the Biden administration and to the uh, Treasury Department that the bond, bond vigilantes are back. And that if you misstep There is a price to pay, and given this environment, there is a higher price to pay. And what we're trying to effort is any sense at all from the Biden administration or from the Treasury that they're getting this message, because the bond vigilantes are back, Brian, and you know it's been 20 years since they've been around.
4: You know, the Bank of England went from quantitative tightening to quantitative easing, at least of a sort, very quickly. And what did the the, the political commentator Steve James Carville famously say 20, 25 years ago? I come back? I want to come back as the bond market. (laughs)
5: Because <laughs> they're the ones that's in charge. That, that, that's true. And these yeah. guys have been dormant for a lot of years. Like, you know, what are those locusts that come out every 11 years or something like that? Cicadas. Well, have been dormant. And, uh, and right now, uh, uh, there, there is, they're, they're putting down markers out there for the fiscal side. Yeah. And, and I've been saying for a long time that, that the fiscal side normally, according to the textbooks, need to help the monetary side when it comes to inflation. I think the U.S. has been neutral to bad, but not terrible. And the U.K. came forward and they're terrible. And as I tweeted out, all it would take, Brian, is a statement from the trust government, the new government there, that we're going to back off or delay these plans. But right now we're hearing that's not going to happen. Very doubtful, And they're going to double down on all this.
4: Steve Leisman, big story. Steve, thank you very much. All right. Well, all the central bank action across the globe, UK, here, Europe, whatever, is playing itself out in bold and dramatic moves in both the bond and the currency markets. We are seeing multi-decade high yields here at home. Rick Santelli joining us now. And and these yields. And first off, Rick, I want to get your take on that. Are we the UK in any way? Number one. And two, talk to us about why high yields matter. They don't they directly eat GDP because of the higher interest costs of funding the U.S. government?
2: Uh, latter question first, yes, yes. It's eating into the budget, as, of course, we all know, well maybe not everybody knows, that if you look at the baseline spending pre-COVID, we're way above that, way above that. And, yes, debt is not good. Uh, issuing lots of debt and spending it at a time where, you know, as Steve pointed out, fiscal issues. But the sad part is that we're just waking up to this? This has been a problem since 07, 08, 09. You know, I remember the credit crisis. I remember central banks having the biggest brooms on the planet, creating the biggest pile under a rug ever. And I think that the central bank in this country should have paid a whole lot more attention to potential global feedback loops. You know, even though they say they're data dependent, they know where they want to go and where they want to go changes every day. That's what I find really fascinating. We all look at Fed Fund futures and say, here's the terminal rate. Well, what we really ought to point out is that the terminal rate is like a roller coaster that never shuts down. It goes up and down, up and down. It's always on the move. And I think that the sad part here is that by time the Fed figures out that you don't really have a lot of inflation when the globe's in a deep recession, but hopefully they'll figure it out before the roller coaster stops
4: and we're on that roller coaster now. Hasn't stopped yet. I feel maybe a loop is coming. Rick Santelli, thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right. Well, the Bank of England's bond buying may be calming some global markets, including ours, today, but it has not done anything when it comes to global recession risks or inflation worries, especially here in the United States. Your next guest says the bond moves will impact growth stocks like tech, but in the long run, Growth always wins on Wall Street. Joining us now is Kim Forrest, Chief Investment Officer at Boca Capital Partners. Kim, how long have we been doing this together? You and I. How long has it been? We can't age oh ourselves.
6: Gosh. 20 years? It was almost another century. I it, it, it feels about.
4: like another century. It, so I, I ask you that because I don't think this is 2007 or 2008. We don't have the CLOs, CDOs, triple synthetic, double inverse, whatever they are, ninja loans. But... But this is the biggest bond move we have seen. It's one of the worst years in history for the equity markets. How does this ultimately play out?
6: Well, I think that we're going to all learn something. I think the, uh, sadly to say, the central bankers of the world are going to learn something. And that is that we are all connected at the hip. I think this is... um, a long time coming. I have big thoughts on the whole concept of fiat currency, which I'm not gonna get into right now. But essentially what I think we've forgotten is that around the world, we have to be proportional in our government debt and we have to be proportional in our interest rates or currency markets go wild. And that is what we're seeing right now. I
4: that is the question, there's two things, right, that matter. Uh, it's not just the moves, is it not? It's the velocity. Rick talked yes. about a roller coaster. It's like a roller coaster. How long does it take to go up? How steep and violent sort of is that scary drop down? And the longer it lasts, the more scared you're going to be. Is this just a sort of a short-term phenomenon?
6: I don't know. We'll see. I mean, it really depends on the, the central bank's understanding that they have to be a little more reactive when things are when the markets are reacting to either actions or non-actions, right? So the the UK is adding more debt, and we don't know how long that's going to go on. That's part of this problem, is the proportionality of their debt and our debt and China's debt. So that's why the bond markets are rolling along like the crazy roller coaster that they are. Nobody knows when it's over. Nobody.
4: No, we don't. And I appreciate the honesty because a lot of people make claims. Well, a lot of people after the fact will tell you, like Subprime, oh, we all yeah. saw it coming. Yeah, I don't remember those people, but maybe they're yeah. still working. Who knows? Let's find some opportunity in this chaos, shall we? Because yeah. the wreckage is where you find the best opportunity. Uh, a name like Coca-Cola. I mean, you know, sodas, right. right?
6: Yeah, and I like them because of their brand. They have a great brand, Um, that's not going to change. People are going to want to go out and drink and eat. That's not going to change. And they will spend up for an experience. And believe it or not, dining out is that. So I think um, Coca-Cola is a beneficiary of that. And it's a long-term play. They've been able to change their product mix, reflecting um, the tastes of people's uh, changing behaviors I think that's great. And plus, they're a company that knows how to use technology. So they that shows up on their bottom line, which everybody should like as an investor.
4: There you go. And I I think it's fair to say we asked you for a stock pick and Coke is it. See what I did there? (laughs) Kim, you're welcome. The jokes have never gotten better in 20 years. Thank you. All right, on deck, our continuing State of Debt series this week. Today, we're going to take a big look at Uncle Sam's big-time borrowing on the backs of your taxes. Rising rates spelled trouble for America's balance sheet. First, a suspected sabotage, the twin Nord Stream pipelines raising serious questions. Who did it? U.S.? Ukraine? Or could Putin be insane enough to blow up his own pipelines? We'll talk about it next. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. It is the global mystery that everybody once answered. Who blew a hole in both Nord Stream pipelines? European leaders were quick to respond, calling the pipeline damage, quote, a deliberate act, but stopping short of identifying a culprit. The EU joining the chorus of lawmakers speaking of sabotage this morning, pledging to, quote, increase Europe's resilience in energy security. But while most of the world is refrained from blaming the Kremlin, A presidential advisor in Ukraine took to Twitter yesterday, saying, quote, this is nothing more than a terrorist attack planned by Russia and an act of aggression toward the EU. The Russian embassy in Denmark responding, saying that such accusations are, quote, unsubstantiated. And meantime, get this, a former Polish defense minister effectively implicated the American government, showing a picture of the leaks on Twitter and writing above it, quote, thanks, USA. Let's discuss with Henning Glostein. He is the director of energy, climate and resources at Eurasia Group. And Nina Khrushcheva, she is professor of international affairs at the New School and the granddaughter of former Russian president Nikita Khrushchev. So it's a real honor to have you on. I'll start with you, Nina. Um, who do you think did this?
7: Well, that's, let's wait until they investigate. I mean, it just happened. And I'm, I hate to immediately jump to conclusions. Um, it doesn't look like... The Russian fingerprint, I have to tell you, because I would imagine maybe Nord Stream 1, the one that has been uh, already damaged and under constru- uh, not under construction, under repair. But Nord Stream 2, I think Putin still has hopes for it. In fact, he talked to Emmanuel Macron and Olaf Scholz just last week, and he said, what are you complaining about? You know, if you turn on uh, Nord Stream 2, you just immediately has gas. So it doesn't seem to be But the British and the Americans have been saying, or the Ukrainians have been saying, that they are trained, they have been trained by the British and the Americans to... Uh, to sabotage Russian infrastructure. So if I would go in an order, it is received. I would go Ukraine first, with maybe with American help or not at all. And then, absolutely, I wouldn't pass it by Putin to do it, to do anything that may seem out of the realm of any rationality. So it's yeah. Well,
4: I wonder, Henning, if rationality is involved in this, right? At the last year of the war, Hitler was suffering from syphilis. He had severe mental illness, obviously. Um, Should have ended the war a year early or ended himself a year early. We don't know what Putin's state of mind is here. We don't know what he may or may not be suffering from. Some people speculated some sort of mental problem. We know that he's acting irrationally in many ways. Do you think that Russia could have done this to their own pipelines? As some sort of false flag, blame somebody else gives me an excuse to do something
8: so as you say we're not in putin's head um so we don't really know who did this and i suspect we might never fully find out is this beyond putin uh, no probably not because um he has already uh, effectively thrown Gazprom under the wagon for his uh, war aims in ukraine uh, Gazprom, worth to keep in mind uh, used to make 80% of its export revenue from its sales to europe those are virtually well they they if almost entirely gone now, and they can't come back. They won't come back this winter, and they might not come back ever, because uh, from all we hear now, the damage to uh, the pipelines might actually be so long, so big, that um, uh, some some experts in, in Germany have said that there might be a rupture of several kilometers of the pipelines, and that's very hard to fix. So, this could be pretty terminal for future uh, gas supplies to Europe from Russia, no matter what happens um, on the ground in Ukraine. So, it's, it, and we wouldn't entirely put it past Putin, but Um, it's a pretty radical act because it closes a lot of doors.
4: Henning, is it possible that the U.S.
3: did it?
8: There's been
4: a lot of, of, you know, things going around, anti-Nord Stream 2. Condoleezza Rice, years ago, said this pipeline should basically never exist. I'm summarizing.
8: A lot of people have said that uh, uh, from president trump said it current president biden said it um the germans were warned uh, for uh, for many many years not just by the americans by the polish by the french by the European commission by many people um not to build uh, overbuild their reliance on russian gas imports um and they did it uh but i would say this i would say
4: this they did it but gerhard schroeder did it Ger- i was in here your- gerhard schroeder is the one who almost single-handedly tied that umbilical cord from Putin and Russia to Germany. And I could tell you, I haven't been in Germany recently. The people had some very choice. I don't cuss. Or I don't speak German, but I know other cuss words now. Uh, Nina Khrushcheva, um, do you think we'll ever figure out who, who did this? Because if it is some sort of surreptitious sabotage, which it clearly might be a dragged mine, uh, divers, pretty deep, it could be divers, whatever it is, could it go unsolved?
7: Could, could go unsolved. And also, even if it is so, then... Any side will deny it because at the time of war it's very difficult to prove uh, to prove someone's guilt when, when there's so much chaos going on. I want to respond to the United States. I, I just I, I don't think that the United States that irrational and that illegal to really go directly themselves. Uh, so I would I mean, I'm actually kind of surprised by Radek Sikorsky because he's a diplomat. He should know better. This is too. OK.
4: Can I may I interrupt you, ma'am? I'm sorry, because I think you're bringing up an incredibly important point. And for our viewers, I want you to continue. But I want to show our viewers what you're referring to and our listeners on the radio, because I think this is an incre- I don't know the man incredibly bizarre and irresponsible tweet. It's the former. Right, right. I think we have a, a a picture of it. The former defense minister of Poland put on Twitter last night a picture of the leak. With two words or three words, thank you, USA. I don't know if he was trying to be sardonic, sarcastic, or whatever. That's a dangerous tweet, is it not?
7: I think so. I mean, that's what I mean. Is is that whatever he thinks? I mean, he is. He used to be in government. I understand he hates Russia. He thinks Putin is evil and, and the devil, which may be true. But still, we're talking about. A global problem. We're really not trying to inflame it rather than be- before the investigation has happened. So I'm quite I'm not entirely shocked, but I do think uh, at this time of war, everybody acts very responsibly with their words.
4: Yeah. And uh, hopefully some people out there on Twitter can do the same thing as well. Uh, Henning and Nina, a really important discussion. We'll get you back on soon because this could be one of the most impactful global events of the year, if not of many years. Thank you both very much. Scary and dangerous stuff out there, folks. All right, still ahead. Sticking with energy, we're going to speak with the CEO of Generac about how they are preparing for the fallout from Hurricane Ian. The storm closes in on Florida. The exchange, we'll tell you about where it is right now. Scary stuff. We're back right after this.
0: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses,
4: All right, welcome back to the exchange and markets on the hump day, getting over the hump, getting a little bear market bounce, whatever you want to call it. The Dow is not on its high. It was up 534 at the high, but we're up nearly 500 right now. The S&P and Nasdaq higher as well, 1 and one half percent gains. Some of the movers this hour, you got VF Corp among the worst performers in the S&P. They slashed their guidance for the second quarter and the full year. Stock is now at its lowest level in 9 years. It's on pace for its worst months since started the pandemic. But large cap retail is mostly higher today. Names like Amazon, Walmart, Costco, TJX, and Target. They are all in the green, as you can see right here. And so is DocuSign. Shares higher after outlining plans to cut 9% of its workforce, around 750 employees. It's part of its new restructuring plan. You know it's Wall Street when they applaud layoffs. Never liked it, but it happens. Stocks up nearly 5%. All right, let's get a CNBC news update now with Seema Modi. Seema.
9: Brian, good afternoon. Here's what's happening at this hour. Parts of Florida are now experiencing hurricane-force winds, even as Hurricane Ian has yet to make landfall. Those winds causing flooding in Naples and knocking down electrical lines in coastal regions. More than a quarter million utility customers are already without power, according to tracking site PowerOutage.us. On the news, telling the damage from Hurricane Ian and keeping an eye on where the storm may go next, that's tonight at 7 Eastern. In Washington, President Biden leading a conference aimed at ending hunger in the U.S. by the end of the decade. The White House also announced $8 billion in pledges from the private sector to fight hunger. The European Union says it is working on a new sanction on Russia following sham referendums held in part of parts of Ukraine. Officials are targeting $7 billion worth of Russian goods. The US is also working with allies to impose new sanctions aimed at choke points in the Russian economy. Brian, I'll send it back to you. All
4: right, Seema, thank you very much. All right, still ahead, the Senate has advanced a bill to keep the government funded ahead of the Friday deadline. We'll get a check on the state of the government debt markets and why higher rates are effectively a great big tax on America. And all throughout Hispanic Heritage Month, we are celebrating our CNBC teammates, friends, and contributors. Here is Halftime Report supervising producer Heidi Martel.
9: There's a saying in Spanish, ponte las pilas. It literally translates to put in your batteries. And I wanted to fire up the next generation of Latinos and Latinas. So we continue to build on the work of so many that persevered before us. Embrace your heritage and your Latinidad. We are all Hispanic, but we are diverse. We eat different foods and wave different flags, yet we are bonded by a shared history. We are bicultural. Let's own it. It's our superpower.
4: All right, it's time now for the third and final installment of this week's special series, State of Debt. And today we've got our eye on government debt. The Senate passing a stopgap measure Tuesday as Congress stares down yet another funding deadline, Friday at midnight. I know it's a clockwork these years, in order to avoid a shutdown. It comes the national debt climbs to nearly $31 trillion. Both parties have been spending like drunken sailors for the last 20 years. Actually, let me correct myself. I'm sorry. That's an insult to drunken sailors, because at least the sailors are spending their own money. So here we are. Record debt, inflation at 40-year highs, a global energy crisis, and a likely looming recession here in America. But is there all upside to this somewhere? Here now to discuss it is Stephen Pavlik. He is partner and head of policy at Mac Renaissance Macro Research. Uh, how'd you like that intro, Steve? Good grief. Um, but when things look the worst, that's often the best time to invest. Bonds? Bonds were... Not worthless, but not far off it for decades. Is there finally some value in in government debt?
3: I think so. I mean, just comparatively speaking, the stock market's performing poorly right now, and we have the Fed committed to interest rate hikes. So I think moving forward, yeah. I mean, it used to be there is no alternative. Now we're seeing an alternative emerging here with respect to bonds.
4: Where do we invest? If our if our viewers are scared, they're nervous. Thirty one trillion looming possible recession, stock market, one of its worst years ever, like, you know what, I'm just going to put my money in government debt or any other kind of debt and just ride it out. Where should they do it?
3: I'm thinking from a geopolitical standpoint, we have a lot of hotspots popping up around the world. So I think aerospace and defense is probably, in terms of the sector, one of the safer places to invest. And then from the dollar, you know, clearly that's strengthening around the world as well, too. And I think people should be mindful of that when looking at the currency situation.
4: OK, I want to talk more about government debt, though, Stephen. So, you know, listen, mm-hmm. politicians and by the way, both parties, it, it, both parties like to spend because when you spend, you, you tend to get votes and you can smile on camera and say, we're doing this. What they don't tell you is that that comes with a bill. The money is not free. And that ultimately you got to pay tax on much of that debt, which means you're actually going gonna, gonna to cost you far more than you initially talked about unless you make subsequent cuts on the other side. How severe of a GDP hit could we take? If our servicing costs on national debt rise above where they are now, which I think is about six hundred billion a year, just on interest,
3: right? The Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget just came out with a report earlier this month that suggested that number is going to climb to seven hundred billion. The other thing to keep in mind too with some of the tax estimates provided by Democrats—they're sort of assuming that. Much of the activity that they're taxing isn't going to change. I'm not sure that's a fair assumption. Usually, if you want to discourage something, you tax it. So my guess is some of the tax revenue moving forward will come at much lower than projected, which is going to make it harder to pay this off.
4: Yeah. How does this, how does this play out, Steve? I mean, that, that's the question. I mean, do rates stay high for years? I actually literally just got a tweet from or a text from a friend of mine saying, I, I want to buy a house. Where are rates going? I, I have no idea. Where where do you could they fall next year if we go into recession? Are they going to climb for years?
3: I think that's something that the Fed needs to consider when they're thinking about the midterm. impact. If you're going to have a divided Congress with Republicans likely to take control of at least the House and possibly the Senate, you're not going to have any fiscal stimulus to rely on when we get to a recession. Now, if we were to maintain the status quo, that could be interesting. We think about what's going on in England right now, because you could have a Democratic Congress looking to provide additional fiscal stimulus. And what's that going to mean for the Fed's effort to fight inflation and interest rates moving forward?
4: Stephen Pavlik, we appreciate your time today. An important discussion because $31 trillion, I don't know about you, but in my book, $31 trillion is a lot of money. Just say it was it's $15, a lot of money. It was 15 trillion, like 20 years ago. All right, still ahead. Stocks on pace for another terrible month. The NASDAQ now down a stunning 30% this year. But like we just talked about, bad times are often where you find the most opportunity. So coming up, we're going to head to the Delivering Alpha Conference. Get the $2.5 trillion view from Goldman Sachs' Julian Sainsbury about these markets, where they're headed. That is with Tyler Matheson in a snazzy green tie. Next. All right, welcome back. Stocks rallying today. The Dow and S&P on pace to break a six-day losing streak. While it would be the second up day in a row for the NASDAQ, as investors of all stripes try to navigate all the ongoing volatility, it is a good time to listen to some of the heavyweights. And what better place to do that than CNBC's Delivering Alpha Summit? Tyler Matheson is there. He's the host. And he's joined by Julian Sainsbury, co-global head of at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. oversees $2.5 trillion. Tyler, my man, take it away.
10: All right, thank you very much, Brian. Julian Salisbury, welcome. Good to have you on CNBC for the first time and welcome to Delivering Alpha. Great to be here. Great to be here. You're gonna sit on a panel later this afternoon called The Next Big Thing. Yep. What are you gonna say? What is the next big thing in investing? Yeah. So
1: um, from a private markets perspective, which I think is what we're gonna be talking about a lot on that panel, I think it's, a lot of it is just continuing to um, invest in the areas, the long-term secular themes that we've liked for a number of years. And they are. So um, a digitization, energy transition, um, enterprise software, these secular growing businesses that have stood the test of time. So we like these things pre-COVID, during COVID, when you had to re-underwrite and looked at the areas that we were investing in, it still made sense. And then as you, as you move into a more inflationary environment, some of these long-term themes continue to make sense irrespective of the environment. So digitization,
10: energy transfer, and the third was um, enterprise, enterprise
1: software, enterprise software, enterprise software. healthcare. There, there are a number of these long-term secular themes, and you don't want to get distracted by the day-to-day machinations of the mm-hmm. ten-year or the day-to-day machinations of the FX markets. These are long-term secular themes that we continue to invest in.
10: You've just closed a nearly $10 billion yep. fund. Uh, how has the capital raising environment changed uh, this year? Has it gotten harder, uh, and or what? Yeah. So yes, we've. Thank you for mentioning
1: this. We've just closed our, our private equity fund. Uh, this is one of a number of funds uh, that we are that we are raising as part of a series of capital raising goals that we set out two and a half years ago. Uh, that we're tracking well ahead of. Um, if, in terms of the capital raising environment, I think you have to break it down into the different uh, sources of capital, and I would say it's certainly gotten harder over the last six months and there are a couple of things driving that. In the institutional investor base, the US institutional investor base, they have an allocation towards alternatives. Um, It's a percentage of an overall portfolio as their both their public equities and their fixed income has come down in price. They find themselves overweight or more overweight than perhaps they wanted to be in terms of alternatives. Alternative alternatives. So their propensity and desire to want to invest uh, or re-up or make new investments has certainly slowed. I think again the long-term secular theme is still there, but uh, you know it's it's a bit of a moment
10: of uh, a pause after a period where they have made significant allocations. Um, I think so. It's it, not a function really of whether people like the business or the businesses that you would be investing in. It's more a function of changes in other parts of their portfolios. Well, you have to look at the individual
1: investor. They will typically have a, a strategic asset allocation model that says we want to be in a certain amount of public equity, a certain amount of fixed income or bonds, a certain amount of private equity. They may not be there immediately, but over a period of time they will work to move their portfolio towards the allocation. And with private equity, it, it's hard to make real, um, what's the word, um, vintage bets or timing bets. Mm-hmm. You, t- you mm-hmm. tend to want to leg into it at a consistent pace over a period of time. But what they've seen right now is that as their public markets have come down, they've gone up in terms of private markets positions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, their, their propensity to want to re-up is, will be slower. Yeah. Insurance, on the other hand, I would have set up until a few days ago still had a fairly uh, keen interest in growing alternatives allocations. And then retail, I think, was still in the early innings of of, of the growth in alternatives.
10: David Rubenstein, earlier today, who knows a little bit about private equity, said uh, and remarking on the fact that private equity firms Stock prices have been hit very yep. hard. Uh, talked about how there's been a revaluation, yes. uh, and and the idea that well maybe those deals that you you bought in that you, you you've taken private aren't going to fetch the same premiums when they when you t- try and monetize yep. them. What are you seeing in the private equity business? Is it as well, this is overstating it. As easy a layup as it as it seemed to be to a lot of us. It's never a layup, no, cl- but c- clearly not. You you don't have that tailwind of
1: extremely cheap money, and, right? And an, you know it, it, it's it's clearly become harder. Um, and I would say what I I would expect if you look at those revaluations of the private equity firms, they're typically valued on. multiple fee-related earnings, which is um, driven by how much capital can they raise, how much capital do they currently have, and how much can they raise in the coming years. And I would say the expectations around their ability to raise more and more capital has probably moderated. So Mm -hmm. expectations Mm -hmm. around fee-related earnings have come down. And similarly, the pace of disposition of existing portfolio companies has likely been pushed out and therefore some of those performance fees could be a little bit lower and further out from a time frame perspective. Um, You know, our expectation is, look, in a a private equity uh, fund, I think we continue to see we will see great opportunities over the coming years to deploy that capital at this exact point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, financing is such a problem that right. deployments going to be quite limited for the next right. few months here. But I think, you know,
10: the, the long term trends. And are forgive there. me, n- what you do is never a layup. I don't no. mean to suggest that. I'm going to take a big leap and assume that you're yep. a UK guy, right? I'm a UK guy. What in the world is going on over there? Um, I, I, sometimes wish, I sometimes wish I could hide my
1: accent, <laughs> um, you know, uh, for, for, uh, because of a number of things that the U.K. has done over the last few years. Uh, I, I think um, generally putting your foot on the gas and the accelerator at the same time is not is not a good thing gas to do. Gas and the brake. Uh, g- sorry, gas and the brake. Gas and uh, the brake. Gas and the brake is really not a, uh, a good thing to do. So, look, I, I, it's, it's caused some real disruption. Uh, I, I think a real loss of confidence in the U.K. Uh, we've seen sterling getting hit. Yep. We've seen, the, you know, the rate markets a violent move um, you know i think some of the insurers found found themselves you know we starting to get in a fairly you know dangerous position yeah, until wrong-footed, the, until, yeah. the uh, until the government came in uh, with their purchases this morning or planned purchases this morning. But, uh, yeah, it's, I think they've, uh, there's been a real loss of confidence there.
10: Julian, uh, thank you. We'll be looking uh, very eagerly to the next big thing, uh, your segment later today here at Delivering Alpha. Thank you, and, and, and we appreciate you coming on CNBC. Thank you. Appreciate it. Really, really nice to meet you. Cheers. Julian Salisbury, cheers to you as well. Brian, back to you, I guess, uh, is where we're going. I've that met, was I've, Salisbury I've met him.
4: I met him, and I still screwed his name up. I called him Sainsbury, which is a U.K. grocery store. I guess my mind is on food. Julian Salisbury, <laughs> not Sainsbury, although they're both great. that was a great interview. Tyler and yeah, Julian, thank you, you both you very much. You got that.
10: He's probably been to Sainsbury, for all I know. Thanks Salisbury
4: a lot, and Sainsbury. Maybe he's been to Salisbury, Maryland. All right, thank you. All right. Be sure to tune in to Power Lunch next hour for two big reasons. Number one, Contessa Brewer and I will be anchoring together for the first time ever. And Number two, Leslie Picker's interview with Delivering Alpha with Toma Bravo, founder Orlando Bravo. Talk about the private equity world and why Orlando is pulling back on his crypto investing. That is at 2:15 Eastern. Dow's up, oil's up. We're back right after this. Back. Hurricane Ian is beginning to pummel Florida. It's hitting a Category 4, but it's not far off being a Category 5 hurricane. Heavy rain and catastrophic winds are expected to knock out power across the state. In fact, more than 700,000 people are now without power already. Well, the entire nation of Cuba and multiple Caribbean islands have already been left in the dark. Wisconsin-based Generac has sent a response team to the Tampa area to try to keep critical backup generators running there throughout the storm, something they have done since Hurricane Katrina back in 2005. Joining us now is Generac President and CEO Aaron Yagfelt. Uh, Aaron, it's good to have you back on. I wish you was under better circumstances. Uh, talk to us about the generators that you provide. Many people are going to be without power, maybe perhaps for a long time. You need power to run water pumps, to keep gasoline running so people can move around. What are you sending down there and how much help could it be?
11: Yeah, thanks, Brian. Yeah, and we hope everybody's uh, trying to stay safe. Obviously, a pretty serious situation. Um, we do have crews on the way down to that part of the country. Uh, right now, they're kind of staging in Georgia, getting ready to, to figure out where the direct impact of the storm is gonna be, but it looks like probably somewhere you know north of Fort Myers, uh, kind of the Englewood area, so pretty pretty serious. So we have a lot of products down in that area today, backing up hospitals, backing up data centers, wastewater treatment plants, things like that on the commercial side. And obviously, we have a lot of residential products. So, for people who are choosing to ride out the storm, which we don't recommend, but if you have certain circumstances where you're unable to evacuate, uh, our products are are ready to go. But our crews are going to be down there, and as soon as we can get in safely, uh, we'll be there to help people. You know, those crews are there to help all brands. It's not just Generac, but we're there to to really try and. Uh, take care of any kind of situation where a product might not be operating correctly.
4: You, most of your residential products, many of them, I believe maybe all of them run on natural gas to co- sort of keep things going. What are the products you're bringing the temporary products you are bringing down? what what are they diesel? How do they operate and how long can they operate without the, their own power or fuel to, to supply right. them?
11: Yeah, so our, our standard products operate off of natural gas or propane, which is usually the the fuel of choice down in Florida or diesel you know if they're in in the uh, commercial and industrial type of uh, applications those can generally run a few days uh, on diesel fuel before they have to be refueled Uh, generally if you're on natural gas obviously you can run uninterrupted as long as the gas line is there and you generally don't see interruptions with that from a temporary standpoint we're sending a lot of uh, generators down to the area hundreds of truckloads of generators that run off of uh, gasoline gasoline is still widely available and they can be used obviously these things can be used in an emergency to provide, as you said, you know, whether it's temporary water pumping services or uh, whether you know, you've got refrigeration needs or air conditioning needs, things like that that are critical medical devices, uh, these products can be used in, that, uh, in those types of applications.
4: And there's other things that you make that a lot of people may not realize. They think of you for generators, but you're getting more into the, the, what, what you call the power cell, this, the big giant battery storage business. For homes and, you know, people knock electric cars, they say, well, the power's out, you can't charge your car, you can't drive away to safety. Not entirely true, right? If, if you've got one of your power cells, these giant batteries that hook into a wall, how long could they store electricity, maybe likely generated by solar power, to make sure you can, if you have an electric car, you can get the hell out of there?
11: Yeah, The power cell is a, is a newer product for us, as you said. It's residential energy storage, it pairs with solar. So, if you have a solar system on your rooftop, you can store some of that power and you can get you know basically 12 to 18 hours of backup power off of that battery. And then, hopefully, the sun comes up the next day and you can recharge the battery at that point. Uh, those are newer products. You know, the technology's come a long way over the last uh, several years, and it's going to have to come a long way, obviously, to match what you can do with a generator. Obviously, a generator is is a better device for a long duration outage like a hurricane, like you know, an ice storm, things like that. We saw what happened in Texas in February of last year where people were out of power for four or five, six days. Uh, it's tough to get by on a battery in those types of situations unless you have a sunny day every day. Uh, but those are newer products um, and you know, we think that that's the future.
4: Yeah. Um, and let's hope that's not the case with multi-day power outages though. Some of the scenes we've seen are scary. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for you and your team. You're going into the storm and a lot of people are going out there to help. Generac. Appreciate it, Aaron. Have a good day. Thanks, Brian. All right, coming up, reports circulating that Apple is going to scrap its plans for production increases for the highest-end new iPhone. The steps the company is taking, and whether more demand destruction may be ahead. around. Right, welcome back. Want to get one more thing before we go? Remember, that's that's what Apple used to say, Steve Jobs. One more thing, and this is Apple. Shares falling on reports the tech giant is ditching its plans to increase iPhone production. Steve Kovac joining us now with the latest. Steve, what's going on with Apple?
12: Yeah, Brian, let's run down what this report that's sending shares lower is actually saying and what it's not saying. So first of all, the report says Apple is dropping plans to increase iPhone 14 production. That would be on top of its original demand expectations. So it's sounding like Apple saw some signs demand would be better than originally expected. But the extra demand faltered in the first couple weeks after launch. But the report backs up also what we've heard the last few weeks. The iPhone Pro Pro models are actually selling better than expected, which will help boost iPhone revenue. Also, there's one more iPhone still yet to be launched. The 14 Plus, that's the regular 14 with the bigger screen, goes on sale next week. So we're not going to get a full picture of iPhone demand for at least another couple of weeks. Meanwhile, Morgan Stanley analysts trying to ease investor fears, calling this report, quote, more bark than bite and noting that Apple's original expectations are holding firm. They're expecting unit sales of iPhones to be about flat year over year though. Meanwhile, city analysts saying this morning that the strength in the pro line can help offset any weakening demand for the regular iPhone 14. They also say a good healthy 76% of new iPhone 14 sold so far are pros. Still, something has changed in the last few weeks that made Apple think there won't be a bonus surge in demand. Jeffrey's analysts may have an answer here saying earlier this week, iPhone sales were down about 11 percent in China in the first three days of sales. Now, Apple declined to comment on Bloomberg's report. But look, we know how the market's reacting here. Down about three percent, Brian.
4: Yeah, I saw I I think it was Bank of America or Barclays. You forgive me, some bank with a B. They called it. They said, is this fake news? I mean, I want to be clear. This is not. Quite like a certainty thing yet, right? Investors are selling on speculation and some reports.
12: We don't know. That's right, Brian, and we get this pretty much every fall that as soon as the new iPhone launches, there are kind of reports and speculation throughout the supply chain that makes its its way into reports like this one saying, hey, maybe demand isn't as good and then Apple comes out and knocks out expectations. Now, keep in mind, they're also talking about unit sales being flat. They're not talking about iPhone revenue, which is what Apple reports now. They report the revenue, not how many actual devices they sell, and that's where people are going to be looking for growth. And if the pros are selling as well, that really boosts their revenue, Brian. Stocks had a tough year, down 17%. We we got used to Apple going
4: up forever. Steve Kovac, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, folks, thank you all for watching The Exchange. But you're not done with me. I'm going to join Contessa Brewer, standing right over there for Power Lunch, which, by the way, begins right now.
0: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.